Hey, stranger. I'm Jenny. I'm Annie, and welcome to Kissing Strangers. From book adaptations to reality TV, we'll be covering today's depictions of romance in all of its forms. Together, we'll try to find out whether the truth sometimes really is stranger Stranger than than fiction. fiction. Uh Today, we'll be covering the second half of Bridgerton, episodes five through eight. A quick summary of where we left off. By the end of episode four, Anthony proposes to Edwina because Daphne told him that he's falling in love with Kate, which he definitely cannot do. So proposing to Edwina is definitely the better option. And we find out that Lord Featherington this whole time has been penniless. So the whole entrapment scheme with Lady Featherington getting him to marry her daughter actually completely screwed their family. A brief recap of what happens in the latter few episodes, we wrap up. The love triangle between Edwina, Kate, and Anthony. The Featheringtons scheme their way into some money. And then we end the season with a Featherington ball. And to no one's surprise, things hit the fan between Penelope and Eloise as it was building up the entire season. Any call-outs from you that you want to talk about before we start getting into the plots and the characters that you want to just bring up? Um, You know who I want to talk about? What? When I watched... Eloise go to the print shop the first time. I was like, oh, the carriage, that's kind of hot. <laughs> I was like, is this going to be a thing? <laughs> and then oh my God. people on TikTok are thirsting over the carriage guy. They're like, who's carriage oh my guy? God. <laughs> are you for real? The whole show is full of hot people. <laughs> it's just really funny. Well, let's just head into the main part. Let's talk about our romance plot and specifically Kate, Anthony, and Edwina. What are your thoughts overall about how it ended or how we got there, I should say? I hated how we got there. I loved how it ended. (laughs) Okay, same, same. Okay, great. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as you know, I am typically a fan of the enemies to lovers trope. And the way that it was executed here on the one hand, I do think that often what I tend to enjoy is the prolonged tension, but I really think they did too much of it to the extent that it was no longer, yes, there was no real impact at some point. You, go, you become kind of desensitized and you're like, just kiss, just kiss. You're basically, this is more intimate what you're doing, smelling each other. <laughs> Than actually kissing. So just okay. kiss at this point, you know? Can I can I complain about the smelling? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate it so much. And you are a lady of that that scent. I cannot believe how many people think him liking to smell her is sexy because I find it so cringy and vaguely cannibalistic. They did it like what three times? Him smelling, and it was more than that. It was more than was that. it? Yes, yeah. The ones that really stand out to me that I absolutely despise is in episode seven, right before they, right before they have sex, pretty much. He like smells her. And they're like, "You're sad." <laughs> and I'm like, "Ew!" Gracious, <laughs> I'm like so disgusted. And then the other complaint I have is. When they go to the art museum together. Oh my God, I was going to say, that is actually, to me, the worst one. That is horrible. Yeah, so just just in case anyone forgot, what happens is Kate walks past Anthony. And by the way, they are very far apart, like three feet apart or something. And he smells the air and then makes a half smile. And Lady Danbury goes like, nah And all I could think was, wow, she must really smell for for Anthony. Smell that gap. <laughs> it's just, it's strange to me because I shouldn't even say this. The smell of lilies, like for me, it's like the smell were like fresh bread. I'd be like, ah, fresh bread. <laughs> but lilies? <laughs> I agree. I really hated the smelly thing, but I also rudely interrupted your train of thought. <laughs> Which was what? That I found. <laughs> Oh, the almost kisses. Very yes, the almost kissing. <laughs> irritating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it it just really felt like they were playing with us. A couple of people I was watching with were complaining that there just wasn't enough sex this season. 
like a lot of people were just expecting more because you basically see Antony's butt before you see him for Mm -hmm. most of the scenes in season one, I want to say. And so I think that's what people expected. That is not necessarily my complaint. I just think that one of the things you brought up last week was we don't really get a lot of Antony and Kate together. I think that changes in this half of the show. However, you're still not getting a ton of like relationship development because their relationship is their faces touching and them talking about how they can't be together but can't resist each other. But we're not getting much more of substance beyond that. I agree. I feel like what I thought initially where they don't have much development together or even honestly separately still stands. I thought there was really going to be only one I burn for you, I vex I vex you type of line, but it seems like, oh man, there's a lot and there's a little too much. But every time they interact, it's with some sort of like sexual tension and they never really talk about each other. So my main complaint this time was sometime, I think in episode six, Mr. Dorset, that guy who was Anthony's Oxford buddy that was courting Kate at the horse races last time, he takes Kate out boating. And I'm pretty sure he now knows Kate better than Anthony does. <laughs> but does he know what she smells like? I mean, if if, if the distance from that smell scene is anything to go by, I guarantee he knows what she smells like. So, yeah. What kind of vexes me about their relationship oh. <laughs> <laughs> is we understand that Kate doesn't like Antony after hearing what he said about women in marriage. And I think it makes sense that he is frustrated with her being an obstacle to him being with Edwina. However, beyond that, there isn't really any clear difference of agreement between them. It just seems like one person is an obstacle to the other person. And I don't find that that is really a compelling conflict keeping the two of them apart once it becomes clear that he's interested in Kate and not Edwina why not just give up on Edwina and pursue Kate right given that we don't have a ton of information at least early on at like the episode four episode five mark that would suggest that Kate is not a viable wife and Antony is already kind of promised to Edwina before the proposal. And so, yeah, it it feels like an unnecessary obstacle that they've created. I think there probably are clear obstacles, which are that Kate is not technically a Sheffield and there might be some sort of considerations on that front, but it's never mentioned. So like as an audience member, you're just left to kind of guess that it's not appropriate. Yeah. Everything about this latter half seems somehow even more convoluted than the first half. Obviously, the guy who wants to fit the ring on Edwina's finger wants to eat cake. So that is obviously why she has to try on the wedding ring. Duh. I just want to be that guy. Like, imagine you show up somewhere and you're just like, you're having cake. I love cake. Wouldn't it be great if I had cake? But no, I I couldn't possibly. Oh, I'll have a tiny slice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, not just, a, oh, yeah, here comes a slice. Oh, yeah, give me all the coffee you have, too. Put some sugar in it. <laughs> Can I just say how ridiculous it is for the ring sizer to say, do you and your sister share gloves? Oh, then I can just measure your finger. Do you understand yes. how much difference there is in how forgiving a glove is versus a ring? That's an absurd Oh, sorry. This is like, <laughs> clearly I'm like hung up on the wrong details, but it really bugged me. Well, they do address that because it does get stuck on her fingers. <laughs> <laughs> the plot and the characters, to me at least, don't really make much sense. I don't understand why Anthony can't just marry Kate. At least they don't bring it up, other than the fact that she doesn't want to get married. At least that's what she's saying. And... He doesn't want to marry someone he loves? Yes. Well, I find it interesting that you ask with a question mark because that is the central conflict of the book. 
is that he's been so traumatized by his father's death and seeing how much it messes up his mother that he decides, I know for a fact that I'm not going to outlive my father. I'm probably going to die young as well. And I don't want to put any woman in the same situation when I die. I I did get that. Really? Because me, me watching it, I did not get that oh, from the show. Well, there was a well. There's a button. I I got that they were trying to do something like that. But I think the problem is in the relationship between him and Kate, it seems like he was the one who was doing a lot more of the pursuing. He actively asked Kate if she wanted to change her mind. He's the one who proposed. He's the one later who says she's running away. And he's doing a lot of that driving. So for someone who doesn't want to marry someone he loves, he's giving a lot of different messages. So from that relationship, it seems like Kate is the one who's really against the marriage. But there's no reason why, other than she wants Edwina to marry a guy that she loves, but she also wants the guy to love her. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, to your point, I just think his entire, this contrivance of his is so flawed because sure, like he could try to actively make sure he marries a woman who he could never love. But if his goal is to not leave his wife brokenhearted, he would have to know that his wife could never fall in love with him. And so marrying Edwina doesn't seem like a great solution because she does seem to like like him a good deal. If anything, let me just make this argument. Wouldn't it be a good idea to marry Kate since she kind of seems to not like him? <laughs> Maybe she wouldn't miss him when he's gone. Like it it doesn't make sense. Well, I didn't see it as a way of him protecting his partner. I saw it as a way of him protecting himself. No, I agree. I think that is ultimately what is presented however in the books his thought process is i don't want to like hurt someone else when i leave well either way i i see this as an anthony problem but like i said before i also see it as a kate problem and even though anthony in i believe episode five he kind of screws up the whole sheffield inheritance thing by defending Kate and her family at dinner. So he wants to break up the marriage, but then Kate says, no, no, don't do it. Edwina already loves you. And I'm like, I thought you wanted someone who loves Edwina to be her husband. What, what, what is happening here? Yeah, the entire Sheffield subplot, just patently illogical to me, was my conclusion. Yes. The way that they behaved at dinner Uh, My understanding is that they were deeply ashamed of what happened with Lady Mary when she eloped to India. And now Mm -hmm. this is their opportunity to re-enter society. Like the whole like Gilmore Girls plot, like now her daughter is here and we have a second shot. So why rehash everything that happened that was so deeply embarrassing to your family in front of the Viscount and his entire family? It makes sense. Like, what is she doing? What is she doing? Yeah, I mean, I can see perhaps having that conversation behind closed doors and either Kate or Edwina or Lady Mary, like one of them being very upset and maybe Antony overhearing. But the fact that that conversation happened over dinner just did not make sense for anyone involved. Um, And I do think that, like, Kate has a more compelling reason to not want to be with Antony, given that even if Edwina didn't love him, it would be awkward to pursue or express interest in this guy after saying she hated him and after he's been kind of courting Edwina this whole time. It's like awkward if nothing else. However, this whole idea of whether or not there needs to be love in the relationship, it it's not really clear to me why Kate is so hung up on it? Is it that she cares a lot that Edwina is in love? Is it that she cares a lot that her husband is in love? Or is it something more than that? Is it like the guilt she feels for keeping so much from Edwina? I don't really know. I don't know either. I don't really understand any of these characters and their motivations. (laughs) So a little bit about what happens with Edwina is that, you know, they make it to the wedding 
And at the ceremony, she realizes Anthony is spending all his time looking at Kate, realizes that they're both essentially in love with each other. And she gets really upset, cancels off the wedding, spends an episode or two really upset with Kate. And then Kate goes riding and then she hits her head. And then, you know, it's a plot induced coma. And then wouldn't it be amazing if she had amnesia? (laughs) (laughs) And then she pretty much forgives her and says, why the hell did you not tell me about this whole thing? And then they have this very brief conversation where they're shown to sort of patch up the relationship. Yeah, I think with Edwina, I think there was a missed opportunity for her to just say, oh, yeah, like the Viscount's fine, but it was so obvious there was something between you guys. (laughs) I agree. When you brought that up last Mm -hmm. episode as how it could have all ended, I thought that was good because it shows that she's also intelligent. Even though we're, we've been told that she's intelligent, there's the scene where she literally sees Kate stare at Anthony when he's getting out <laughs> of the water. And I'm like, oh, you, I, I see you see that. <laughs> and nothing, there's nothing going through there. Hi, are you hurt? Come now, it's not proper to stare. It is interesting how they try to showcase that Edwina is very intelligent. There's a conversation between Edwina and Antony where he asks her about herself, like family, that sort of thing. And she talks about how she wants to support her husband. And the reason that she feels like she's so well-tempered is that she has resources from doing all this reading. And she asks, (laughs) she's like talking to Antony about reading. And Antony says, I have to admit that The only books I've read this year are ledgers from the estate. (laughs) Right? This is earlier. This might be from last. Yeah. Yeah, But I was just like, oh my God, she's basically on a date with a finance bro. (laughs) (laughs) Like, imagine you go on a date and someone's like, oh, the only books I've read this year are Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) Okay. I I don't think we picked this up in our last recording. Kate is the cool... Kate is a cool girl. (laughs) And that's why Anthony likes her. Yeah, it's very true. She's not like other girls. Yeah. Yeah, she she doesn't ride side saddle. She's mean when she plays sports. (laughs) She's competitive about everything. (laughs) So... (laughs) Okay, now I'm even, like, more upset by their lack of compatibility because Kate is literally Anthony, but a girl. <laughs> and I don't believe you should be with yourself. <laughs> I do think it's very entertaining that his entire family can see that she is literally him. Yes. They're both equally, well, we see more of Anthony being just so, he's, I feel like in the later episodes, he's just hilariously annoying. <laughs> like, he's not even annoying anymore. He's just, like, so hilariously, like, uptight and older sibling. And everyone around him is like, could you please just, like, calm down? <laughs> like, this is so unnecessary, you know? And he, the whole time is, I need to do this for my family. I need to do this for my family. And Kate's out there being equally annoying, being like, I need to do this for my family. <laughs> Meanwhile, their family is busy being ingrates. <laughs> they couldn't care less. Yeah, the whole time the family is like, please, keep this to yourself. I want you to pursue true love. I want you to be happy. No, my responsibilities. I'm a failure. Okay, so I do think a failing overall of this season and maybe to a lesser extent last season is this feeling that the love value is being driven by everyone except the protagonists. Yes. It doesn't feel nearly as compelling as other people and society driving one set of more pragmatic values and the heroes or heroines being more driven by these kind of internal conflicts of, you know, love, passion. I think it's just strange to have someone's mother come in 
and tell them, I really want you to find love. And that person being like, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, no, mom, I don't want to be happy. Screw you. (laughs) Don't tell me what to do. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to talk about, Edwina, before we move on? It's funny that the queen leader brings up her nephew, the prince, played by, what's his name? Freddie? Freddie Freddie Stroma. Freddie Stroma. This man, he is everywhere that I don't expect him to be. But every time I'm like, oh, Freddie Stroma. <laughs> I recently rewatched some clips from season one. They did him very dirty with the, the as you call, mutton chops as well. <laughs> yeah, the horrible, horrible long sideburns that extend yeah. almost to like the corners of your lips. Yeah. I recently saw a clip from season one of Antony and I was like, is this the same person? Um, I know, I know. I had rewatched a, c- a couple clips on season one just to make sure I was like remembering how bad his hair was. Yeah, the uh, the button shots not a good look for anyone. But anyhow, I think the queen brings him up at the end as a potential pair for Edwina, and I was like, yeah, that actually makes perfect sense. They seem like they would actually be a good pairing. Why? Because they're both plot points for our main characters in both seasons? Yes, and bland. But I think they would mostly yes. talk about how, oh, you were also a plot point for a main character. No way. Same. <laughs> so much in Well, common. mine was my sister. Who's <laughs> yours? <laughs> they tried to give Edwina some sort of backbone, and they try to make her more interesting and compelling by having that scene with the king where you can see her kind of cater to his, what I assume to be dementia or something, by playing the part and saying, oh, it's your wedding day, you should go take a rest or something. I think your main recommendation is way better than anything they actually did, which is just having her be okay with everything. I just didn't find that to be particularly effective because I think what we already know about Edwina is she is good at doing whatever it takes to smooth over situation until it has no flavor whatsoever until she's like contributed almost no personality and I think it would have been nice to have her actually throw like a real tantrum in a way that was disruptive but really all she did was get mad at Kate behind closed doors I I guess her storming out of the wedding was pretty disruptive so Mm -hmm. in fairness I will give that to her yeah do I take it back I don't know. Somehow, like, her storming out of the wedding wasn't played out as big of a scandal as I expected it to be. Well, I think it was actually a pretty big scandal because afterwards they try to do all those things to make sure that people are buying the fact that the whole thing didn't happen because it was a mutual decision or something. But what actually ended up solving the whole scandal was the queen saying, oh, I canceled the wedding myself. I kept thinking, I don't know if I was being unfair to Edwina because she did spend, I think, there's only eight episodes, okay? So she spent three episodes just being upset as opposed to having some more character development. Do you think if you were Edwina, you'd be that upset at Kate specifically? Hmm. I mean, I think, wouldn't you be upset at Kate and Antony? Exactly. Yeah, but Antony had a really traumatic childhood Uh, whatever (laughs) (laughs) so i think what you're forgetting jenny is that anthony's dad died and i'm sorry his mom really wasn't around the year after and so it's kate's fault even though kate's dad also died and kate's mom also died (laughs) (laughs) and and her stepmom also was not around that often All right. Well, let's move on to some of the themes that the whole romance plot brought up. Specifically, I was thinking of talking a little bit more about how the show dealt with absent mothers, as well as the concept of true love. But I don't know if you had anything. As far as like the absent mothers thing goes, I just feel like Daphne did more to advance the plot romance-wise than Viola did. She was way more observant. First of all, like you, you see Lady Danbury and Violet eavesdropping on doors, but the only 
outcome from that is Lady Danbury nudges Antony into proposing at dinner and he ends up choking. Like beyond that, <laughs> what have they really done? And then when they do meddle, it's in a strange way. Lady Danbury has this weird confrontation with Kate where she was kind of like, what are you doing? Like, do you love him? Like, you know, and, and then the outcome, what is the desired outcome? I don't really get it. I don't think they're necessarily absent. I think it's more that they're useless. Is that mean to say? Actually, I don't really even, I don't actually agree that they're necessarily used. I don't know about Lady Danbury per se, but I guess he does drive the plot forward in the sense that she gets the queen to granted we know the diamond title and you know, I see her more kind of as someone there who's just supporting them financially. I would actually say that the final talk that Lady Bridgerton has with Anthony, where pretty much she apologizes and says she's really sorry for all of the responsibility that ended up falling upon him after his father passed away and how no matter what still, she would still, for starters, marry the late Lord Bridgerton, his father, because they had the happiest times of whatever true love, true love. But also that she just expressed like being sorry that she wasn't there to help. I feel like that, I think, was intended to be the scene that the audience is supposed to think, oh, Anthony's now changing his mind and he's now open to love and therefore he's really in it to win it with Kate. And that's why he goes and does that horrible proposal by her bedside. You deserved so much more than that. I came to apologize yes, and to that. ask you to marry me. I did not want it to happen like that. So. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for you to just have sex outside. Here's a wraith. <laughs> I'm a gentleman. I'm a gentleman. You deserve so much better. My father raised me to behave with honor, but now that honor is hanging by a single thread. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I guess these are iconic lines, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my, been my entire TikTok feed. I just find the lines so funny for some reason. They are so funny. <laughs> oh, I did, sorry, not to go back to this again, but the confrontation where go inside. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I, that made me cringe <laughs> so much. The worst part was not when he said go inside the first time. It was when he said go in. <laughs> no. Or, what did she say? Uh, what did I what did I say about you and your rules? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think a lot gets made about her being, I guess, like not a rule follower. When have we actually seen her flouting the rules besides the horseback riding thing? Like, where, what rules has she broken? I'm really struggling to understand. Well, maybe it's the rules of just being a genteel lady since she loves to argue. Oh, maybe. If you count that as a rule. Yeah. It, it is weird to me that Antony would be so taken aback by her because his sisters are on his ass all the time. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Although it does suggest that maybe he likes women who are like his sisters. Ah, uh, I like that implication. Can we not go down that path? Hey, remember Just when like... they were worried that Eloise was going to be the diamond? <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. Well, Eloise is not necessarily a horse girl, but she is also not like one of the other girls. Mm -hmm. So very much. I mean, so. yeah. Okay, let's let's stop talking about this. We I, don't want to talk about this. We've beaten this horse to death. Just to clarify, what I meant by absent mothers was more so the fact that both Lady Mary and Lady Bridgerton were absent after their husband passed away. And that's why a lot of the responsibi responsibility fell on Kate and Anthony in their families. And the reason why I brought it up as a theme I wanted to talk about was I just feel like motherhood is really hard. And for me, at least, I don't really remember what happened last season, but in this season to have both of our mother figures be absent mothers and apologizing for being a bad mother, I just don't know if I like what kind of messages then. Agree with you. I find it 
troubling that all we need is one scene of Edmund, Antony's father, showing him how to hunt to illustrate that he was the perfect husband and father. Oh, my God. And poor Violet over here has literally passed eight freaking babies out of her body, almost died giving birth to Hyacinth. And because she wasn't all together with it, after the deep trauma of watching her husband die and then, you know, have a child without him and almost die in the process, she is now, what, permanently villainized for having not been there entirely in that period of time? Yeah, it's messed up. The double standard is ridiculous, especially considering how much she worked to protect Daphne last season. And yes, Antony completely disrespecting her and Daphne's wishes during that process. Yes. Very similarly, in the conversation that Anthony and Lady Mary have in the art museum, where Anthony pretty much apologizes to Lady Mary how everything went down. Lady Mary says, well, men do take time to realize their culpability on such matters. But then proceeds in that same sentence to say, oh, but it's also my fault because I was an absent mother when my husband passed away. I'm just like, come on, man. I just wanted to kind of bring that up as something that they did to both of the mothers in this season. And I don't think I like it. So moving on to the theme of true love. True love is now being touted by literally every single character except our main protagonist as the be-all end-all of life. It is a very powerful thing to meet someone and feel that you know them unlike any other. Do you have any more opinions on this other than the fact that it's annoying? I just, I think, <laughs> wouldn't it just be amazing if the main characters were like, actually, nope, I had it right all along. No love for me. No love. No love. You know what I want? Cash money. Smart babies. <laughs> I mean, that would actually be a little bit more subversive based on the plot that they put down here. Yes. I don't want to give the impression to our audience that we don't believe in love or something. <laughs> but I don't believe in true love. Maybe I just feel like true love is like an old fashioned concept that doesn't even really need a place in a show like Bridgerton. I mean, my what I'm getting from the show isn't that it has to be true love. Like, I'm not getting this. The message to me isn't necessarily like there is one person for you out there. It's more that there is this strange ahistorical focus on it that I actually think takes away what was compelling about a lot of these romance plots to begin with which is that they were existing in tension with with what societal values were. I do think, though, a lot of the side characters do push an actual concept of true love. Lady Bridgerton, Lady Mary, they all say something along the lines of, when you find that person, you'll just know when it's different and they'll know you or some some bogus like that. And I'm just like, is this like a necessary thing to even push? for a show of 2022. I mean, that goes into my entire complaint in general of how even though Bridgerton is a very now show in a lot of ways, a lot of the themes that they push are still incredibly, I don't know, early 2000s. And I don't think it has to be. I feel like there's small details they can change in such a way where it's more modernized to how we think about everything now. And it doesn't even take away from the plot or the conflict or even the enjoyment of the show. So, yeah, I it's also it's one of those things where even if they did want to make it a central idea, they don't have to push it in quite so heavy handed of a way. There are plenty of romances, rom-coms where that is clearly the center of the plot. But I don't think you have so many side characters talking to the main character about how they need to make it their, like, M.O. Ooh, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wrapping up this whole love triangle romance plot, let's talk a little bit more about our B-plots. Let's start with Lady Whistledown. 
Lady Whistledown's words carry far too much import. We must entrap the scribbler. Genius idea, ma'am. Yes, that is why I thought of it. I think we knew this was going to blow up in a pretty major way because Eloise was really sniffing down Lady Whistledown and she had formed a friendship with the printer boy, Theo Sharp. The very just happens to be cute printer boy. Okay. Wait. <laughs> so don't full tangent. He's definitely really cute, but there's a scene they had together and it was like their profiles. And I thought, oh my God, they really truly look like siblings. And then I no longer shipped it. <laughs> they look more like siblings than Eloise looks like a sibling with her siblings. I agree with that. They have um Similar noses, I think. Yes. And she has a very distinctive, like, yes. really dainty nose. Yes. So, anyways, that's my tangent about that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's less that they had great chemistry together, necessarily. It was more that he was being so obviously set up as her male romantic interest this season. Yes. She runs into this man who she makes inaccurate assumptions about. He turns out to be this raging feminist. Yeah, oh my God, it was so unbelievable. <laughs> what? Okay, so to, to quickly recap, right? She ends up going to this feminist gathering where he's there. You find out that the feminist paper that she, he gave her earlier was actually written by him. This is too much. This is too much fiction. Too much fiction. Anyways. And then they spend a couple times together looking into Whistledown, just sharing books. And you can tell they're both really interested in each other. But what ends up happening is none other than Penelope or Whistledown writes about Eloise going to radical political movement with dodgy characters or whatever the word she uses is. And they end up going their separate ways. It seems ridiculous to me that Penelope goes to so much trouble to never speak poorly of Eloise that she puts her on the Queen's radar as one of the people who might be responsible for writing Whistledown. Like, it seems to me like she's not even writing about Eloise, period. I feel like, I think the Queen said something along the lines of, you're hardly ever in Whistledown's papers. Oh, you know what? There's a huge plot hole. I'm just realizing this. Because Whistledown wrote so harshly about Daphne last season. Like, extremely harshly to the extent that they were freaked out because they thought that Whistledown was going to sink Daphne's chances. Why didn't Eloise just say back to the Queen, why would I write such horrible things about my sister if it were me? Like she well, not ha- just not just her sister. Like Whistledown also writes about Aunt Anthony being a a rake. Yeah, he, being a rake. She writes about Anthony being a rake. She has this information about uh, Colin and Marina. They're yeah. like these very obvious things that actually would not have been written if Eloise were Whistledown. I mean, I can see how, from a writing standpoint for the season, it makes perfect sense. But right, yeah. Right. Logically, not not great. I actually, so I don't know if this is what happened in season one. I haven't rewatched it, so I can't tell you. But I did notice that the actual snippets of Whistle Down that are read by Julie Andrews don't say anything. So you're really supposed, it's really like up to the watcher's imagination on what Penelope can possibly be writing in these papers. I think that I watched a couple of episodes from last season just to refresh my memory. The difference is what's being written really doesn't advance the plot in a meaningful way, whereas what was being written about Daphne and the Duke last season actually did matter to some extent, at least in terms of setting up the plot. And so you got a little bit more last season of of Whistledown saying things like, you know, looks like this diamond has lost its luster. That's not a that's not real time, but you know, like things like that, where it actually alluded to what was going on in kind of a right. judgmental way, and that's yes. not really happening 
in the same sense this season because she's typically, if anything, just describing something that we've already seen unfold on screen. Yes. Or talking about some larger thematic concept that is somewhat related to what's going on between Anthony and Kate, but not actually. I guess we should talk about Penelope and Eloise and their final episode fight where Eloise essentially realizes Penelope is whistled down, goes through her room, finds her stash of money, and gets, for what it's worth, very warranted, super upset with her and says she never wants to see her again. Yeah, and then Penelope gets really upset. She doesn't write for a while, but then at the end of the season, she starts writing again. Yeah, did you (laughs) find that as bizarre as I did? Yes. She gets extremely upset. Nothing really happens. She picks up her pen again and smiles and continues to write. Yeah, what the frick? <laughs> I guess I guess Gossip Girl always has to be in Gossip Girl, but is this necessary? I don't think so. I, yeah, it felt like they could have kept her writing, but at least reframe the way that she was writing. Like, perhaps she keep, keeps on writing, but decides that, you know, since her best friend is no longer speaking to her, she's just really not going to care anymore about what people think. She's been very much influenced this season by how Eloise is responding to her writing. But, like, maybe the next step would be just writing and writing what she thinks without really caring about her audience. And perhaps she just writes, like, even more salacious details that she would have, like, pulled her punches for in the past. I don't know. Maybe we'll see that next season. I just think that, like, her suddenly writing with no real, like, emotional or, like, character development felt a little sociopathic. Um, yeah. Penelope pulled a real dick move. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be on her side. They have that scene where she sees Colin pretty much say, oh, my God, I would never court Penelope. And she obviously feels bad because she's really into Colin for some reason, which I still don't understand. But that was such a dick move. Because the Bridgertons were, as a family, were already on the outs from the whole wedding outcome. And that really was just like the nail in the coffin for the family. When Eloise was saying how... She just has to come clean that she is whistled down and she'll corroborate with, uh, collaborate with the queen. I was thinking, you know, honestly, right now, this is when Penelope should say, by the way, I'm whistled down. I'll help make this happen with you. It was definitely selfish. I think that it wouldn't have been a costless move for Penelope to tell Eloise given all of the horrible thing that Whistledown has written about the Bridgerton family, they're not as bad as the scandal that have been written about the Featheringtons, but they're still bad enough that I think Eloise would have freaked out, and I can understand Penelope continuing to keep it from her. I understand why, from a quote-unquote society perspective, why Penelope would be so against Eloise and Theo, but... Reading these scenes, it just seems like some sort of interpersonal jealousy. And that's partially why she does it. Yeah, I I think, to me, the show, some of its failings are that it tries to be too obvious about things that I think the audience can pick up on their own. And then other times, things are so nuanced that I can't tell if I'm making them up or if the show is actually trying to lead me in a certain direction. (laughs) And perhaps that's because there are deleted scenes or something like that. But I think, like, the Antony-Kate stuff, we've kind of agreed. Too many heavy-handed smellings of each other going on. (laughs) Whereas with the other plots, I mean, sure, they're subplots, but it's just, like, not always clear to me what the central tension or conflict is that is driving certain characters towards decisions is that nuance or do you think that's just that that's what i'm saying well i don't know both both (laughs) Both. Um, i guess both yeah all right so last plot point we want to probably touch upon is the featheringtons 
what we find out about the Featheringtons is after Lord Featherington essentially comes clean that he has absolutely no money, Lady Featherington and Lord Featherington work together to con the ton, the ton, into buying all of their fake necklaces and getting a lot of the guys to invest in Lord Featherington's obviously non-existent ruby mining business. And what ends up happening is Colin and the boxer from last season who total random side plot is starting a gentleman's club. They work together to pretty much expose Lord Featherington for being a con man, even though obviously they would not know that Lady Featherington is pushing it as well. And then Lord Featherington is asked to leave to the Americas. Anything you want to talk about here? So it it's so strange because when this plot was first being developed, I was so terrified of the Bridgerton family getting looped into the scheme, which I think is basically an MLM. I thought it was going to turn into one at one point. I was like, oh, and then these families are going to recruit other families to get involved in this uh, it's not Ruby an scheme. MLM, but it is a pyramid scheme. It is a pyramid scheme, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. He literally says, now that we've taken everyone's money, we got a flee. <laughs> we don't have money to give back. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I was very concerned for reasons I don't understand about the Bridgertons being on the brink of financial ruin, which realistically would not have happened because Colin doesn't have that level of access to the family's finances. And so he couldn't have gambled away the whole fortune anyway. However, when you ultimately find that Colin was in on it all along, my first thought was, wow, Colin is so OP. Like, how could he? <laughs> He's such a, like, a dope. Like, how could he possibly know <laughs> that that was what he was doing, you know? Yeah, I I have to think the whole thing was some sort of setup for Colin to look better for his season. Right, right. And because the writers must know, he doesn't come across as super appealing throughout being a total, I would degree snob for the latter, the, the latter seven episodes. I liked him last season, but they definitely set him up as a really annoying study abroad returned kid yeah. this season. I actually, it was so surprising to me that he was in on the whole con and the, and he wanted to expose Lord Featherington that it felt almost out of character. Yeah, it it was confusing as a resolution to the entire plot. I also just think a strange choice was, I think Lord Featherington at one point was effectively blackmailing Mondrick into silence by saying, you know, I kind of have an idea of how you made all this money by perhaps fixing a fight last year. And so uh -huh. if I don't say anything, then you can't say anything about what I'm doing. And yet, like, Ultimately, Mondrick does reveal it, and there are no consequences from that happening. Yeah. Which, it's not that I want bad stuff to happen to him. It's just, like, strange to set that up and not have the consequence actually happen. What did you think about Lord Featherington and Lady Featherington together? That was so weird, and I am really glad she just nipped it in the butt at the end um, <laughs> and sent him packing. That was amazing. I think the Lord Featherington and Lady Featherington dynamic was portrayed pretty well where Lady Featherington in the end kind of standing up for herself saying, screw yourself, go to America, I'm going to stay here was a little bit of a surprise because you feel like earlier it was a little unclear who exactly was in control of that relationship because even though Lady Featherington was calling the shots in a lot of the scenes, he definitely seemed kind of sus throughout but in the end he just was kind of an idiot all right now that we covered all of the main plot points let's just move on to our final thoughts on season two as a whole you want to start um sure i mean i think on the whole despite the fact that i've now complained for a net what four hours <laughs> yeah something like that i think it's almost hilarious that i've complained for as long as i have because I've spent the last week or so since finishing the season 
just desperately searching for something else that is exactly like Richardson. <laughs> I've Googled that so many times. Trust me. <laughs> it's just so funny that there's so little out there that I find fills a sweet spot between something that I'm like interested in is entertaining and doesn't cause like an emotional drain on me after I'm done yes. watching it. And yeah, yeah, it's despite all our complaints, I think that Bridgerton does nail that for the most part. And I'm I will be watching next season with great interest, even though I once again don't think I'm going to find the leads compelling. Yeah, very similarly, despite all of my numerous complaints, I do think the season took some of the critiques to heart. No more baby bangs, no more mutton chops. We talked about how everyone's looks improved. Obviously, there's no deeply problematic sexual assault scene anymore. They actually brought in a little bit of Indian culture. The most obvious example is when Edwina was getting ready for the wedding. They actually had a scene where they were doing like an Indian prep for wedding, as opposed to just some generic stuff. Like they were clearly supposed to be Indian, as opposed to just pretending in the previous season. Oh yeah, everyone's equal. There's no racism. That was really cool. They addressed the colorism too. And I think they made an effort to think about South Indian representation and not just Indian representation. There's like Mm -hmm. an effort to think about that. I do think There are people clamoring for a flashback to like an Indian wedding between Antony and Kate. And I think that would be so so fun to watch. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like thinking the clothing alone. Yeah. It would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I hope that they, they seem to respond at least somewhat to fans in a way that I don't think a lot of Netflix shows necessarily do. And so I'm like hopeful that they'll be taking the feedback. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, I just want, I want to show like Bridgerton, but like better. That's, that's, that's what I really I want. I agree. I criticize because I care. And again, I do think a big part of it that's holding it back is it does play in a lot of these old-fashioned romance tropes, which are inherently problematic. And I don't know if we should have that capacity now to be forgiving of that so i I guess i don't necessarily have a problem with the tropes themselves i think that they're a nice shorthand sometimes in that they're familiar you kind of know what to expect i think they're entertaining for understandable reasons i think where i typically start to be less satisfied is the resolutions typically are very convoluted and problematic and they don't have to be but they just are because a lot of times it doesn't seem like they've thought about how they're going to resolve it until you know episode seven well a part of me even wonders if like we should even support a show i mean they did take the criticism and are trying to address it but again the show had a the show from the first season had a sexual assault scene with literally no consequences for the assaulter. In fact, in the end, she gets everything she wants. And she's just forgiven. Yeah, I mean, I think that that relationship was... Frankly, it's kind of wild that I'm sure that uh, couples therapy doesn't exist in... right. Well, it could in Bridgerton. They could make it exist. But like... That's true. You can't have the kind of flaw in the relationship that they did between the Duke and Daphne without really working through it in a way that is more complicated than what we see unfold on screen. Because I think that Daphne never really faces consequences for assaulting the Duke. On the flip side, the Duke also basically has an entire physical relationship with Daphne that is premised on a fundamental lie and a, like a misunderstanding of what their relationship actually is. 
And I think that that is also extremely problematic. Like, would Daphne have let him touch her if he if she knew that he was lying to her the entire time? Like, probably not. Um, so their entire right. relationship was kind of based on a lie. I don't know. Yeah, they they really need couples therapy, and realistically, probably should not be together. But <laughs> yeah, y- yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I even have my doubts that. Anthony, Anthony and Kate, and Kate? oh my god who yeah. should be I mean, together once you start investigating this like the entire sweater gets unraveled like <laughs> there's nothing left alright well finally it is that time again it is time to announce some awards so for first category we have No Stranger 2 and our nominees are Plot Induced Comas Rings being stuck on fingers. The whoops, I just had sex. How did that happen? And a sudden wish to be a part of the landed gentry. Anything else you'd like to add in this category? No, I think you nailed them. All right. So who do you think should be our winner? Ooh, tough one. Um... <laughs> I, I probably would hand it to the uh, convenient plot-induced coma. Oh, yes. <laughs> overused. <laughs> I have to say, this one, I was genuinely surprised happened. I really didn't think we were going to get a cola scene or a cola moment, but here we are. Yeah, I was picturing more like she is unconscious and then comes back in his arms but no right. no prolonged no, no. coma near death prolonged coma where everyone thinks about it you know if everyone could do a whole three, uh 180 character change all right our next category and by the way i only have one nominee so feel free to nominate whoever you'd like but for stranger danger my single nominee is penelope <laughs> penelope is a bad friend okay <laughs> Like, prove me wrong. I mean, yes, I I agree. She's not the best. I think Lord Featherington should make it on here. He is a pretty dangerous stranger as far as uh, as far as people go. Sure, we can add him as well. If there's only between those two, though, I think I might still vote Penelope because Lord Featherington did get played by Lady Featherington in the end. Yeah, um, I agree with that. All right. And our last category is The Strangest Stranger. This time I got two nominees. Although, for what it's worth, I feel like anyone could be in this list. I have for nominee one as Edwina. Because I don't understand her at all. And for nominee two, I have the Queen. Similarly, don't understand her at all. Anyone else you'd like to add? Honestly, yeah, I, I guess I agree with those. Um, it's hard not to just say everybody. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, Edwina is strange. The Queen is strange. I also find, um, as I mentioned earlier, the Sheffield's behavior was really incomprehensible to me. <laughs> right. Wildly to a, strange. To a lesser extent, I find Lady Mary really confusing we barely see her this season yeah it's just it's strange to me how absent she is you know who else is strange why is Cressida going around so smug when she's still single after two seasons that's what I'm thinking (laughs) (laughs) she was trying to get with Colin for that one second right they hadn't danced together or was was it Colin um, I thought that, well, yes, to some extent, but also last season, it briefly looked like the prince might be into her. This season, there's been the whole Lord Featherington debacle. I mean, at this point, things aren't looking great for her. Oh my God, she's on her path to spinsterdom. <laughs> and then, thornback dove. <laughs> All right, do you have a winner for the strangest stranger category? Hard to pick. It's hard to pick. 
You know, I, my personal pick is still the Sheffields. I just really don't understand it at all. The entire scene. I think that's fair. I felt like half an episode could have not happened based on their behavior. I think that's really fair. I think my pick is still Edwina. I could only think in the episode, in the scene where she supposedly mic drops the, I don't believe in true love. It's supposed to be a mic drop. Like, ooh, yeah, put her in her place. But the episode before, she literally said, I want true love. So the mic drop didn't really work. All right. I guess that wraps up Bridgerton season two. Thank you, everyone, for your time. We've been your hosts, Annie and Jenny, and this has been another episode of Kissing Strangers. Tune in next time for the latest developments in your favorite content. And until then, don't Don't be be a stranger. stranger.